Welcome to a very special edition of the Women in Sport podcast brought to you by CSM Live. I can row an ocean as a totally normal, non-sporty, non-rower and break a world record, then we can all do anything. So my guest on this episode of the Women in Sport podcast is an absolutely phenomenal woman. If you follow our social media channels, you may have seen Victoria Evans and her Sea Change Sport campaign smash the world record earlier this year to become the fastest woman to solo row the Atlantic. In the process, she raised a staggering £25,000 for women in sport and through working with schools has helped inspire girls and show them that barriers are there to be broken and you really can achieve what you set your mind to. I follow Tori's journey, the highs and the lows, and I'm incredibly grateful that she's come here to come to tell us all about it. Morning, Tori. Good morning, Sarah. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Good. Um, I'm glad to see you back on dry land and, and talk to you finally after your challenge has finished. Yeah, it feels very nice to be on terra firma. It's two months today, actually, as we record this, since I touched land. Oh, wow, is it? I didn't realise that. Um, So, I mean, let's start at the very beginning, um, because it was a few years ago now, wasn't it, where you kind of took on this challenge and made the decision that you were going to row across the Atlantic. Where do you start? I mean, where did that even begin? As in the idea to do it? Absolutely. I mean, you know, where does that come in one's life where somebody says to you, (laughs) you want to do this? And you go, yeah, that that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Well, I think it was more my desire to do something to raise money for charity came first in that I'd been working in sport and had been working. I lived in Switzerland for four years and I'd been working whilst I was over there with a few groups that were looking at women's rights and equality in sport and just felt the environment was sometimes um, a little negative and, and the sort of it's very important for people to have a forum in which to air their grievances but you also need to look at how to move that conversation forward whilst telling a positive story and I knew when I moved back to England that I would like to do something in that sector and that having previously done some adventure sport it would be my preference to use a big challenge as a platform to to tell that story. So I was already on the lookout for a challenge and I thought about doing some more mountain climbing, which is what I've been doing previously, but I tore my knee and there's not many mountains to train on in the UK. And then I met someone who was about to row the ocean and I thought, wow, that's, I didn't even realize that was possible. Um, so I followed their crossing was very interested in that as a as a sport and signed up originally to do an organized race and then decided to go for the record which is you're better setting off slightly later so I pulled out of that race and went independently. In your mind you kind of decided at that point you really wanted to do a world record attempt? I think I just wanted to do whatever would create that biggest the biggest platform and I think a record is a cherry on the cake in terms of what you achieve in taking on a challenge like this you know it should never be the only focus but it does help drive that media interest and that's ultimately how you gain audience and reach so yeah I think that felt like the best way to to push the the narrative forwards. So you've made up your mind to row the Atlantic now you're someone with no rowing background and quite an interesting backstory in that you're talking about all of these big challenges you were thinking of doing but you you weren't a sporty girl and teenager growing up how did you find sports yeah I wasn't sporty 
at all. I actively avoided sport. So I uh, grew up in Huddersfield in Yorkshire and had quite a sort of turbulent childhood and a few issues as a result of that. So I had an eating disorder for a long time and, and uh, very self-conscious, you know, all of those things that we see listed time and again as to why teenage girls aren't active. And I met a friend when I was at law college in my early 20s who'd started running and I'd never seen someone take up a sport from the you know get-go and and succeed in it and that sparked my interest and then when I was 27 I ran my first half marathon with my then flatmate in London and um just after that moved to Switzerland so I just started getting an interest in sport and then I moved to Switzerland and was working for UEFA and in this friendship group of women who were so active and, you know, they played football and climbed mountains and skied and did all these things. And I inevitably just through osmosis more than anything started to, to be more active and the setup at my new job was very conducive with that. And, but I think the key factor was that I was surrounded by people who backed me to do it or made me realize it was okay if I couldn't do something. So you know, they were taking me on 150 kilometre bike rides the fourth time I'd ever been on a road bike and, and telling me it was fine if I didn't make it. And and I think that safe environment of knowing it's OK to fail and it's better to give it a shot just really pushed me into testing my own limits. And and I loved it. You know, you can't you can't be good at sport unless you look after yourself. It really pulled me out of some of those long standing issues and just totally changed my outlook on what I'm capable of. So mm. I would, you know, and that's kind of the driving force for me is that I want every woman and girl to experience that if they're not already active, because it is so transformational. Um, but having worked in sport for a decade now, I've seen firsthand all the issues that exist as to why that's not happening. Yeah, that's really interesting. Did it? Did you find it had a real shift then with your, obviously it would have done physically, but certainly mentally as well in, in, in all areas of your life? Yeah, absolutely. I think you're just so much better equipped to manage stress and you have a healthy outlet for that. And you also gain self-confidence and self-worth and those inevitably mitigate some of the issues in the first place. So yeah, I think it's just the, the factor, the benefits are so much more than just physical take us back to the challenge you've decided that you want to do this challenge um in the process you've, you've mentioned it was very much a charity focus you chose women in sport for your charity what was your reasoning behind selecting the charity I think the the piece of work you've done that really caught my attention in the first instance was the 30 percent you're lobbying around 30 percent on boards and that for me coming at it as a lawyer that is where you're going to drive real change in the Mm. landscape of sport is to change policy um but also you know all the work you're doing in terms of research and it's such it's such a difficult charity to try and explain to people who aren't involved in that world why you're doing it but actually those are all the things even though they may not sound big and exciting and sexy like research that really feed into all of those changes that that drive proper progress and it's great to have campaigns that get people active and what have you but unless you're creating a landscape for long-term fundamental change that will be temporary so that was the kind of yeah 
reasoning for me. Mm. And we're very, very grateful for it. So, <laughs> um, so you've got, we mentioned you've got no rowing background. So where do you start? You know, how does that even work? What did the training look like? I mean, are you just rowing in, you know, in your gym on a, on a, on a sort of a static rower? No, I actually signed up to row with a club in London. Um, so I trained for a year, just under a year with a club just to learn the technique and which actually lots of people don't do, which surprised me, but I found it really beneficial and inevitably as part of that, you train on an erg as well. So you're building your fitness, you're learning technique. There's a company that make all the ocean rowing boats and they were fundamental in helping me prepare in terms of picking a boat, getting out on the water, learning what kit I needed. Like they, they do a fantastic amount of work towards helping people who do want to do a challenge like this. Um, so it's, it's step by step. I think if I'd have creaked open the Pandora's box of admin at the start and seen quite how much was to come, I'm not sure I would have signed up. But uh, yeah, you have to take it stage by stage. You know, you sit exams, you learn navigation and radio licenses and things like this. So it's a lot of work to get to a point where you can safely set out on the ocean and you can't rush that process. You know, it takes a couple of years at least. But then I also had the wonderful addition of a global pandemic, which dragged it out by another year because I got postponed for 12 months. And so how did you manage that uncertainty? I mean, it's difficult for everyone, wasn't it? But when you kind of got your mindset ready that you're going to do this challenge and those delays keep coming in, um, how how did you manage that personally? Uh, Well, not always very well, let's be honest. Like it was incredibly stressful to be, because I quit my job in the September of 2020. So I was unemployed. I'd budgeted to then do this crossing in the February, finish in the April and go back to work and carry on with my normal life. And I moved out my apartment in the January because my lease was due to expire whilst I was on the water. So at the point where I got postponed, I was homeless and unemployed. (laughs) So not ideal. Um, But yeah, I think I'd got so far down the road with it. And my messaging is so about not giving up in the face of adversity and overcoming challenge that I knew there was no point I was going to walk away. But it took a lot to then redefine what the next 12 months looked like, find work, then find work that fitted with training. You know, it was incredibly stressful, but I just didn't want to give up or set the example that you give up. So yeah, you have to find a way. You have to persevere. I was incredibly lucky to have an amazing support network. Challenges like this are very much mental as well as physical. And was there something about the COVID pandemic coming in and that extra level of resilience that you had to find that helped you throughout the the sort of physical crossing? I mean, don't get me wrong, had it been the choice to not have it, I wouldn't be like, yeah, it's so beneficial. Um, But what I do think the shift was, was that before I got postponed, my entire focus was on the record. It's all I cared about. I wanted the record. I was really competitive. I am really competitive. And then actually having been postponed, I was just so grateful to get out onto the water And right up to the last minute, that wasn't guaranteed. You know, I got COVID three weeks before the crossing. I had to leave the, well, I chose to leave the UK in the December prior to setting off in the February because of Omicron. I was worried they might close the borders again, which is what postponed me the first time round. So there was no guarantees at any stage. And 
I'd put so much into this challenge that the thought of it not happening at any stage was just incomprehensible. So I was just, yeah, I think it gave me a new level of gratitude for the privilege that is being able to undertake an adventure like that. Did you do any kind of specific mental training? Yeah, I worked with an amazing coach called Chloe Lamphia, who's based in Chamonix in France. And we did a lot of physical training, but we also did a lot of talk. She was, you know, so much more than just a physical coach. We did nutrition, we did mental work. We did a lot of talk about this concept of the roommate, which is the voice in your head that is sometimes negative and how you can't listen to your roommate, you know, you can accept that you live with a negative person, but it doesn't mean that that's who you are fundamentally. So it's that concept of observing your thoughts without letting them overtake you. And I think that generally in life is just a really useful skill to have. because It's a really interesting concept. I don't think I've ever heard of it described as a roommate before, but you can really start to visualise that. She's actually just written a book where she talks about that as part of it. It's only in French at the moment, but it's going to be in English. And she, I think it's, especially when you're rowing on your own, it's so easy to have self-doubt or, you know, with all the uncertainty that I had during the campaign to talk yourself out of things. And actually, you know, we are capable of so much more than we think we are. And you just need to train your head into accepting that. And I think just by doing sport generally, you are without realizing it, overcoming that voice because, you know, when you're doing a 5k run and it starts to get hard after 3k and you're telling yourself that you just keep running because the sooner you, you know, the sooner it'll be over. If you continue, you are overcoming those negative thoughts. So yeah, I think it's such, such a good tool to have. Don't let your roommate drag you down. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) So February this year, you finally set sail from Tenerife and there's a really, really lovely video of your mum standing at the harbour side waving you off and saying, bye, Tori. What was going through your mind at that point as you, you know, left left the harbour in Tenerife? Oh, it was actually really emotional leaving. I mean, it was a little bit, it all sort of seemed to, finish in a bit of a rush of actually getting off of the pontoon and getting out but yeah I felt really emotional leaving my family because you just don't know what's coming you know you are essentially setting off on something that could be life-threatening if you mess it up so I felt quite emotional I'd say within 20 minutes of turning around the marina wall and rowing out into the ocean that had totally gone because I've spent so much time on the water training that it just felt like another trading row, except I, you know, didn't have to row back against the tide, which is a positive. So I was very comfortable in that environment. So as soon as I lost sight of, not lost sight of land, you don't lose sight of land for 24 hours, but as soon as I was out into open water, I felt fine again. Those first videos, you seemed absolutely in your elements those first few days. Well, is that what it so, really felt like? Yeah, I was so happy to be there, like I say, like it just... I'd spent so long thinking about it that to just be there felt so surreal and almost I visualized it so much and I've trained so much that I almost expected it to be this like marked occasion separate to training and actually a lot of it felt very similar before the massive weather hit it was very similar just consistent so (laughs) it's not it is and it isn't this like life-changing experience because if you're ready for it it's just an extension of what you've been doing for so long so it's quite surreal once you get out there and realize that 
mean, it shows your training absolutely prepared you 100% for what's to come. Most of us are rarely alone, are we? Uh, certainly not for you know that length of time. And there are certain points in your crossing, and I think there's a statistic to say that the closest person to you at various points of that crossing was actually on the International Space Station, which is absolutely mind-boggling. I mean, it's it's really hard to, to understand that. What what was it like to be alone on a seven-meter-long boat in the middle of the ocean? Yeah, I actually didn't mind the solitude. I think it's very different to being lonely. You know, you ch- I chose to be there. I chose to put myself in that situation and I didn't have, it's not as though the option to spend time with other people was there and I was being denied it. There was no choice to be with anyone. So I definitely didn't feel lonely. I think the only times I struggled with being on my own were when I was just so fatigued you know, there were days, especially in the second week where I was falling asleep whilst I was rowing, waking up because my head would touch the safety rail, like hallucinating, exhausted. And the weather was so big on my crossing that I could never take a break from that. You know, it was very difficult to carve out time to go below deck and sleep. And that was the hardest part that there's no one to rely on. You can't pass the reins to someone and and even when you are resting, you can't really fully relax because you've always got one eye on what the boat's doing, what the weather's doing. So that was the hard part. But in terms of the actual solitude, yeah, I mean, I try to just see that as a good, you know, like you say, no one really gets that opportunity to to really get to know themselves, to spend time alone in in such a beautiful environment. Like, I think that's all the question of mindset, isn't it? How you choose to look at it. Did any weird habits creep in? Did you find yourself talking to yourself or talking to teddies or, or anything like that? Or did, was it literally just you you and your piece in your head? I talked to the ocean quite a lot. Usually when I was cross, I'd be like, give me a break. When are you going to give me a break? But I think actually what I was doing was just relieving some of that stress by shouting. <laughs> no one can hear you, right? I'm so sure there was some stiffer language that came in at some points. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, not for this record. Um, but... The ocean is such a big presence in that crossing. Obviously, that sounds like such an obvious thing to say, but in that it changes daily, it looks totally different from day to day. And and I think it almost becomes this like second personality in the crossing mm-hmm. because it does sometimes feel like it's against you or it's with you or it's... So, yeah, I talk to the sea a lot, but not... I didn't really talk to myself, but I, li- I also listened to a lot of audio. So that was my way of calming myself down on the really stressful moments was to just listen to storybooks. But tell me about the weather then, because you did have some re- really huge weather, which was at points a blessing and at points an absolute curse. How did you contend with that? Yeah, the weather was insane and it it just never stopped. So on an ocean rowing boat, it's designed to surf big waves and it's designed to take assistance from following weather. So you're you spend all of your training hoping for big weather and I don't think I'd ever contemplated it would be as big as I got it so it was great but it was also very scary you know it's a real test of nerve when you've got huge waves piling onto your boat and and I think had it been like that intermittently that would have just been fantastic but the the lack of respite was the issue and the issues that that then caused with the boat so you know I took a wave into the cabin which damaged some of my electrics I got locked out of my aft cabin so I had to hacksaw my way back in for three and a half hours whilst 
massive waves were crashing over the back of the boat. You know, it felt at points like it was literally shaking the boat apart. So that caused a lot of fear. And and I don't think I'd realised how much that affected me until the last week because the, sec- the third and fourth week were the biggest weeks of weather and then it calmed a little bit. And then my weather router was sending me messages at the end about how it's going to pick up again. And I just couldn't deal with it. I was like, what do you mean it's going to pick up? Like, how big is it going to pick up? Am I going to have 28 knots of wind again? Like, am I going to blow past Barbados? <laughs> so it was really, really intense in a way that I don't ever wish to experience again. And hopefully never will. Um, yeah. What about that fear factor then? You know, you spoke about it then, but did you contend with a fear of potentially dying? Was that something that you'd you'd come to term with before you set off on this trip? Or was that something that you just said, this isn't going to happen, I'm going to face this challenge and I'm going to get there and I'm going to complete it? Yeah, the latter. I think everything is a calculated risk and obviously there is inevitably more risk in something like this, but I would never have set off if I thought there was a genuine chance I might die you know I did every bit of preparation that I could to make sure I was ready whether that was meteorology courses or safety courses or training or and those boats are so well built you know they're bomb proof so it would take something huge to take that boat out to a point where you couldn't survive on it until you got rescued and I don't think there was ever a point where I immediately thought gosh I'm about to die but there were definitely points where I thought, gosh, if one thing changes, this is going to be a really sticky situation. So you were very aware of the risk. And I think I just spent all of my time catastrophizing about what could happen and then planning for that to make sure it didn't. So you have to constantly be alert. But I never felt that my life was immediately threatened, no. So what does a typical day look like? I mean, I suspect there isn't such was, thing as a typical uh, day, but, but kind I, of how did you manage that routine if you if you managed to get into something that you know looks like a routine? Yeah, I wrote this wonderful three times eight hour plan before I set off of what my days were going to look like. And I, was, I think that lasted about two days. There was no daily routine because I was just permanently at the, at the whim of the weather. So it, I think most ocean rowers with lighter weather would tell you that there was a routine or teams will tell you that there was a routine because they're doing handover of shifts. Whereas I just had, you know, there were nights where I was exhausted and all I wanted to do was have an hour sleep and I couldn't come off deck because my autopilot couldn't hold. And then I was being turned sideways into the waves and then I was risking capsize. So I was on deck constantly, you know, having two hours sleep in aggregate across 24 hours. So there was no routine, I don't think. And, you know, and that has its own challenges and you're then so fatigued in a way I can't even describe. And I actually listened back, I've started listening back to all my voice notes Mm. I recorded. And the most interesting one is I'm describing all the weeks and I'm like, and this was the brown week. And And I know what I meant as I said it, because in the second week, everything seemed brown and the clouds were brown and there were people... (laughs) in the clouds around the moon and it was the week I had all the blood on the deck that I still mm, know what mm. from and and now I'm like is that was everything brown or was I just so tired that that's how I was seeing it you know how like fire escapes are green because apparently it's the last call you see before you pass out like was there something mentally going on 
as a result of that fatigue that was mm. causing that. And then in the in the really positive weeks, I'm like, this week's yellow and, you know, the sun's out and I'm drinking orange pop and, and I, <laughs> I can see why those colours, but it's weird that that's how I've described it on the on those recordings. That's really interesting that your mind went to that kind of colour chart with that. Um, what was it like going, because I know you have quite a lot of questions and especially from children that were following your challenge. And I think one of the most common was how on earth do you go to the toilet and what yeah. do you eat and how do you sleep? So <laughs> take us through that. My niece, my niece asked that question when I went to her school. I was like, thanks. Um, <laughs> So you you don't have a bathroom. You have a bucket and chuck it. Um, you, I took ration, you know, like space food mm. almost that so you hydrate with boiling water that you cook using. I had a desalination unit on the boat that takes the salt out of the seawater, produces clean drinking water. You put that in a jet boil, boil it, add it to the food, hydrate it. Um, I actually stopped eating water after week two because the weather was so big. I was too nervous that I might get burnt. Um, I did all the usual, you know, clean my teeth, uh, washed with clean water in a bucket when I could. I only washed my hair a couple of times in the six weeks. So that was pretty tasty by the time I arrived. And life is very simple. You don't take a lot. You know, I only had a couple of changes of clothes and I knew what I was doing every day, what I was eating. There's not actually that many decisions to make. And what about the the actual demands on your body then, you know, with you know, when we do extreme challenges or, or any kind of challenge, just going out for a run, you know, that feeling of getting back and having a shower and putting clean clothes on, it gives you such elation, doesn't it? Such joy. Yeah. And you don't have that. It's, you know, it's it's constant day after day after day with very limited washing, barely any downtime. Um, how was your body feeling? Yeah, so I... I think in the first few weeks, you're actually more focused on the tiredness than you are the physical elements but after a couple of weeks I started to have real problems with my bum because the type of boat I used there was just water on the deck the whole time so it was never dry so you constantly sat in a wet seat so no matter what you do I you're going to start having problems with your skin um so my my poor little bottom got really sore my hands blistered and actually as you I don't know if it's skin regeneration or pressure from the oars but your hands get really itchy so I would like rub my hands together really hard to try and almost like scratch them. Um, I, I think towards the end, you reach a level of physical exhaustion that's just, you know, again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be putting my hand up to get to again in that you, your muscles are so overloaded and so overused that towards the end, I started to feel like I was pulling all of that load in my joints. It was like, I could feel it in my skeleton, like everything ached and pushing myself up in out of the aft cabin after I changed the auto helm and things like that were just so hard on your joints. So yeah, it's very extreme. And what about the moments of pure joy? There must've been some with the nature surrounding you, maybe a yellow day as you've described. Yeah. Um, you know, was there, a, was there a couple of those where you were just like, this is you know, some of the best times of, of my life and I'll always remember this? Yeah, lots of those. I really tried to sit and take in what I was seeing and I've not sat down and processed all that since I got back and I need to, but there were days where I'd look out and just be like, gosh, you know, really soak this in because probably only to do this once um the day the super pod of dolphins visited me on my birthday was just incredible and I heard them through the cabin wall before I saw them I could hear them squeaking under the water 
Um, and they were just, there were just so many of them in every direction. That's one of the videos I've been putting in my school talks and the kids love it. And, but yeah, I was, I was on an absolute high for the first few weeks and, you know, had a yacht go past that was chatting to me and all these amazing moments. And even in the harder times, I would try and take in what I was looking at. And then towards the end, I was just like, gosh, I feel like I've been so in the trenches for a few weeks that I perhaps haven't enjoyed this in the way that I thought I would. And I haven't had all those moments of like beautiful sunsets and sitting on the deck because A, my boat's not big enough for that. B, there haven't been any because it's just been raining. Um, So I had a few moments where I like turned my nav lights off one night and just sat and looked at the stars for 10 minutes and was just, the stars were just like nothing you've ever seen before. You're just incredible. And, you know, it is, I was always aware that it is just such, such a privilege to be in that, that space. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to see the stars without any light pollution, let alone with nothing else around you to see them in all their glory. You could see Mars, you could see Venus. Just stunning. I've seen some of the videos since you returned um, and there's one in particular that touched me actually where you were starting to read some letters from home and you got quite emotional and you just stopped you had to put them away and and not let yourself get to that place yeah was that something you learned or was that something you realized on that on that trip that you kind of thought I can't let myself get to that point because it's too hard to bring myself back I'd say I learned that on the trip because I wouldn't have taken them had I known that that was the case. But And actually, I didn't read one until about two weeks after I got back on, on land. I think when you're talking to someone on the phone, they're able to sort of help you get out of that place. Whereas when you're reading something, it's so personal and they're from people that you care about so much. It, it was just too much. And I just didn't have, I didn't have enough time because of the pressures of the Mm. environment to sit around and, you know, have a cry or feel sorry for myself, or you had to snap out of it as soon as possible. And that was really, you know, I remember ringing the boat company when I was locked out the cabin and Lizzie who works there, who's incredible, just said to me, you know, ultimately Tori, you are going to have to pull yourself together and figure this out because you're the only one there to fix it. Mm. And I was like, God, yeah, I am. (laughs) There's no one here. So yeah, you cut, you have to keep as even a keel as possible, yeah. I think, and not let your emotions in. And and I did that a lot. And actually, I've had moments since I got back where a song will come on and I can remember what was going on at the time and I'll just burst into tears. Mm. And I think part of that is because I just haven't, haven't processed any of that emotion. I'm getting emotional talking about yeah. it. I just haven't had the opportunity to process any of that emotion. And is that something that will will come that you'll allow yourself that time to process? Yeah, absolutely. I want to write about the crossing. I don't really want to write a book just about the crossing. So I think there's so much more I want to do, you know, with life, mm. with what I actually want to use that crossing as the platform for. But I'm starting to do talks and things. So I am starting to sit down a lot more and go back over. But I think, to be honest, when I first arrived, I just couldn't, it was like I just shut the whole thing out of my mind, probably as a safety mechanism because it had been so stressful. And then I've, life has crept back in. I'm working a lot at the moment. So I just haven't had the time to do that. But yeah, I definitely need to do it at some point. Mm. So what was that moment like then when you first saw the coast of Barbados? 
oh, coming that, around the horizon. Without question, that's one of my favourite moments in that you're rowing backwards, so you don't see when it first comes <laughs> into sight, but I knew it was coming. So as I was rowing from about 36 miles down, I'd get up intermittently and check, and then I saw it and I was just like, I cannot believe I've crossed this entire ocean. Like, I can't believe that's land on the other side of the world. Like, insane. And and more that I knew that my friends and family were there mm. and that I knew I was going to be safe. I did a video of it and that's the word that's it, it's interesting to me that that's the words that I use that like the safety of the safety. marina is just mm. over there. And, and that is really how I felt that I'd finally be able to switch off and, and rest and relax. And there's, a, there's also a, a, a quite a beautiful thing that the pilot did when your friends and family yeah. were flying over and he plotted exactly where you were. So as he flew over and into Barbados said, Tori is just there, which must yeah. have been a really beautiful moment for them as well, actually, to know that, so, you know, they, you were so close. To, they tried to record it, but they were all too busy crying. So basically, <laughs> my mum had asked them to let her know just because she was interested, but then yeah. they actually did a shout out about it on the plane and then they brought them some champagne. And as they got off, they gave them another bottle of champagne uh, to have with me when I arrived, which is what we had when I pulled into the mm. marina. So, yeah, just the the... I'd say the best thing of doing this challenge has been just seeing the good in other people. People are so willing to help and to celebrate and to, and it's just so heartwarming to see, Mm. like I'd recommend anyone do a challenge just for the kindness of strangers. So when you pulled in, when you pulled in, when you rode into the Marina in Port St. Charles, I mean, is there any words you can use to describe that moment as you were nearing dry land for the first time? In your mind, it's this wonderful momentous moment. But actually what happened was I rode in with a support boat who were total legends. And halfway in, I was like, guys, I really need to go to the loo. And I was still wearing full foul weather gear. So I had to like get changed whilst they all looked the other way. I didn't know at the time they'd all been horrendously seasick because the breakers on the way in were really big. Uh, so after I'd finished having a pee in front of a boat full of blokes I'd never met before, I pulled into the marina and there'd been a whole debate about whether I'd be able to stop at that marina because I had to get special customs clearance to finish in Port St. Charles because of COVID. And um, so I pulled in, I saw my brother, I threw him a line and he was like, oh, I can't, I can't pick that up. So immediately into sibling bickering, I was like, I just rode 3000 miles and you can't even pick up a piece of rope. And he was like, no, no, we're not allowed to touch you until you've touched land for the record. And I was like, that would have been really useful for someone to ring me up and <laughs> So actually the pull-in moment was not, but the moment I heard my friends and family cheering from land was just, again, I'm probably going to start crying if we talk about it too much, was just so incredible. Like the fact that people were willing to travel all that way to watch me row essentially about 100 metres was just amazing. (laughs) And like, yeah, just to see people you care about for the first time after doing something so stressful and knowing what you've put them through as well you know it's quite Mm. a selfish pursuit so probably the best moment of the whole thing for me was that 40 days 21 hours and one minute and you did it was was that in your mind at that moment had you let yourself process that part of it the challenge part that you set out to achieve well no because I actually thought it was I can't remember if I thought it was 42 or 44, but I didn't know it was 40 days until I'd been on land for about three hours. Um, No, I think, 
I just very quickly snapped straight back into like catching up with the people who'd visited and like seeing all the people who'd come from Barbados to see me in. And I I'd never really stopped to think about it. I think probably for the first three or four days, you're just on pure adrenaline. Mm. So, you know, and also, like I say, it's great to have that record, but the ultimate goal is for the, for the challenge, for the campaign. So I haven't really sat around thinking about that at all at any it, point, really. You you know, you beat it quite substantially. Was it nine days in the end? I think about eight, yeah. Yeah, eight and a bit. So, you know, we, we knew that you were well in for, for certainly for the last week that, you know, unless anything absolutely catastrophic happened, you were gaining that world record, which was fantastic watching that journey. Yeah. When when you finally got onto land, um, what was that feeling like, especially physically? I mean, you've sort of talked through a bit of the mental side, but, you know, how do you cope with standing again and, and sort of going through all those movements that you haven't done for that period of time? Yeah, well, I assumed I'd have land legs because I got really bad land legs when I went sailing for four days and I didn't at all. My I felt absolutely fine. But as I, so I'd pulled in, thrown this rope, it had not been picked up by my brother. Touch land, <laughs> got the record time. And then I had to row round to another point in the marina to moor. And as I was rowing up there, I was just looking at everyone on the shore thinking, gosh, there's not one person there that I know that knows how to tie up a boat. <laughs> so I had to jump off as soon as I arrived and, and tie the boat myself. So I didn't really think about my body or I didn't have yeah. any time to sort of worry about that. I was straight onto land. Next job. But, but yeah, I didn't yeah. have land legs, which is mind blowing. Um, but I did feel it. The walking for any extended period of time was hard because you were lower back and your glutes and everything mm. aches. My, I had very bad pain under the heel of my right foot. So definitely had like physical hangovers from from that but I think as soon as I got back into being active and rebuilt that muscle it's it's been fine was there anything certainly um that you wanted to eat or drink because that's something that must have been in your mind I mean eating rehydrated food for 40 days um you know can't be the nicest experience in the world so there must have been a meal that you as you were kind of getting closer that you allowed yourself to think oh I just can't wait to eat that yeah I think the things I dreamed about most were like fresh food Mm. so the thing I really craved maybe this is because it's what we used to have a lot as kids was like a really cold juicy granny smith apple which sounds so basic (laughs) um or like fresh salad or fresh fish I really craved fish I had one period for a few days where I was really craving steak and I'd imagine that was probably something to do with iron or Mm. but really like fresh food um and then frozen margaritas that was the thing I wanted the most in terms of a drink or like a crisp glass of rosé which would have been Uh, lovely on the deck in the sunshine that you didn't get (laughs) yeah exactly um but yeah just all of that like healthy fresh food non-stodgy food which is what we had we went for a meal the first day I arrived that was exactly that I had lobster roll and lots of rosé it must have been glazed Yeah, I think you deserved it at that point. I think yeah. you could have pushed the boat out with the menu at that point. No pun intended. Um, so, you know, after those kind of first initial days, and how did, how long did you spend in, in Barbados? And, and what was that time like while you were there? Yeah, I was there for two weeks in total. The first week, my friends and family were there. 
And then the second week, my mum just stayed on with me. Mm. Um, that was hectic as well. I thought that would be like a lovely Caribbean holiday. And because I did loads of media and I did a press conference with the tourism board and then they mm. organised for us to do some fun stuff and World Sailing organised for me to go to uh, the rum distillery at Mount Gay. And, you know, it was constant. And then I moved back to the UK was sort of straight back into work and then I'm on a six weeks of convent since I've been back so it just hasn't stopped at any point so like Barbados was incredible the people are just amazing and they helped me so much especially the yacht club and the people associated with that you know I literally couldn't have done it without them mm. so yeah they were just I, if anyone's looking for a place to visit I can't recommend it enough so now that you've you've you know you've been back a couple of months and you've had a little bit of time to reflect not a huge amount of time and there's still that reflection process to go through you've earned yourself a world, world record you raised 25,000 pounds for women in sport which is just phenomenal what have you learned through the process oh don't take on a big challenge during <laughs> a global crisis it's probably top of the list um I don't know. Someone asked me the other day if I thought I'd learned anything about myself on the water. And actually, I think I'd already learned those things by having to persevere and getting to the start line of, you know, that you really can achieve anything if you put your mind to it. And we are physically capable of so much more than we give ourselves credit for. But I think the biggest change, and it's perhaps not something I've learned necessarily, but is that I can drive that change if I, you know, even though I'm just one person, I can drive that change and we can all do that in whatever sector we're interested in. And, you know, I've had it come to me since I've got back that I've been approached about doing some legal work around exactly that. Mm. And obviously can't go into the details of that, but working on a, on a case that hopefully really will drive some proper change. And, and that, I think sometimes feels so out of our reach as, as people, you just think, well, what difference can I make? And actually, if you start something, you know, it's that classic, if you build it, they will come. Um, that we all have that capacity to drive change in, and positive change. So don't ever underestimate yourself or negate your own uh potential I think I mean for most of us an ocean row possibly isn't on our life plans oh yeah um, but Very <laughs> but you know it's that pushing ourselves isn't it and pushing ourselves outside of our comfort zone whatever that may look like how important is that do you think I think that's the key to being active isn't it you know mm. being truly healthy requires being active to a point where it's not always comfortable and it goes against our nature to want to put ourselves in a situation when we're not comfortable, but actually as a mountain guide once said to me, like all sport is to be enjoyed afterwards. And that's so true. And the benefits that come from that are so outweigh the negatives that I would say, just give it a shot. You know, that can be anything Like you say, everyone's got their own version of crossing an ocean. That could be walking for half an hour four times a day four times a week for some people and whatever that is just try and draw on some of that resilience and find examples that you find inspirational and think gosh if that person can do it if I can row an ocean as a totally normal non-sporty non-rower and break a world record then we can all do anything mm. I mean as women though we you know I mean I'm generalizing but but there is a higher 
proportion of women who tend to self-exclude because of the fear of failure. What is your advice for, for overcoming that? I think you have to just back yourself. You, you, and if you're not able to back yourself, you need to surround yourself with the people that will back you because that's what I had when I started out. And And I think it's also crucially important to recognise failure is an inevitable part of success. You know, I didn't succeed at every stage of this ocean road. It was ups and downs throughout the entire challenge. And, and I failed a lot, you know, I got rescued by the RNLI at one point. And there are points where you fail because you're pushing yourself and you're learning and that's, that has to happen to be successful. So perhaps redefine how you view failure. And what next then? I mean, you've been talking to schools and you've mentioned, you know, this is the start of Tory's campaign, you know, for, for greater gender parity and a, generally, you know, a better society for, for, all, for all of us to, to live in. Um, so where are you taking this next and, and what do you hope to achieve long term? Yeah, it's everyone's question, isn't it? Everyone's like, what's next? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> bit of a rest. A part of, yeah, so, think- chill time and reflection time and all of that yeah. needs to come. I think I'll definitely do another adventure at some point, but I definitely need a bit of downtime before that. But but I do want to do the work that I set out to do in the first place. I think most people do challenges because they're interested in the challenge. I wanted to create a platform to to do this work and that has happened. And yeah, I, I can't go into the details specifically of what it is I'm working on at the moment, but I am working on a case and I'm giving my time for free in a way that I know if we can succeed will fundamentally change that landscape. And that's, I think, the best application of my skill set in that I could go off and raise a load more money for charity. And I do want to hit that 50k charity mark. So we're talking about doing an event in maybe October to look at raising the other half of that target. But I think the best application of my skills with being a lawyer is looking at how I drive change behind the scenes. And that's probably a very boring, unexciting answer for anyone who followed followed the challenge and was hoping I'd be doing another ocean row or what have you. But, you know, I wanted to put my name out there so that people would know to come to me. And that has happened, thankfully. And, And the fact that people know that if there's an issue that they think needs support, legal support, they can come with that, then I would hope anybody else also feels able to reach out because, yeah, it's so hard to try and say it without saying it. But yeah, the the matter that we're dealing with at the moment, I think Mm. it's going to be incredibly difficult to take on, but just has such potential to fundamentally redefine so many areas of sport. If anyone can drive change, you certainly can. And I think you've proven, you know, you, you've definitely got the fundamentals there to do it. Um, just finally then, what advice would you give any girl or woman to inspire them to be active and inspire them to um, to really push their comfort zone? What would that nugget be? I think just knowing it's knowing you've got it within you, you know, don't assume that that's for someone else that it's this otherly sector for somebody else because it's not you know it's I remember thinking god how on earth am I ever going to raise 100 grand in corporate sponsorship to fund this challenge and 
ultimately you've just got to start you mm-hmm. know just take that first step don't think about the bigger picture just focus on the immediate goal even if that's you're running a 5k but you focus on the first k like step by step it all adds up into something bigger so start with something that's just outside of your reach but know that you've got the capacity for absolutely everything if you want it so you know it's chicken and egg isn't it because that self-belief is just so supported by achieving Mm. you know realizing that you're capable of doing something so start with something manageable but dedicate yourself to it and you will smash it and then you'll realize that the next step is also within your reach and those steps will just get bigger and bigger Wonderful. Well, Tori, thank you so much for joining us. You've been absolutely phenomenal. Congratulations in everything that you've achieved with your Ocean Row, the world record, the money you've raised and the platform that you've created. Um, You know, all of us are women in sport immensely proud of what you've done and we can't wait to see what you achieve next. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for listening to the Women in Sport podcast and thank you too to CSM Live who sponsor this episode. If you would like to know more about the work we do, head to our website at womeninsport.org. And if you are in a position to support us financially, hit the donate button. As you've heard, we believe sport transforms lives and we are working to make sure that no one's excluded from the joy, fulfilment and lifelong benefits that sport does bring.